Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, and I think time and again, there's this irrationality for the fact that like, if we are even from the perspective of, of trying to be quick to market, compete, come up with the best ideas, you're never going to get there if your team can't work together well. And we are having an epidemic of um, just interpersonal issues in the workplace that cost billions of dollars a year because people do all sorts of crazy stuff when they don't like or want to support their coworkers. There's all these amazing studies that are just, you know, documenting the sort of sabotage um, or inefficiencies that happen if my priority in the situation is to make sure you don't get ahead um, that has real implications if we need to be working as a team i'm srini rao and this is the unmistakable creative podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements built thriving businesses written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art for more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Leah, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of a mutual friend and longtime listener of the show and was very intrigued when I found out a little bit about what you did. And given the nature of your work, I would like to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life and your career? <laughs> Love it. Um, so I was an odd combination of social groups. I, um, I was like team captain of varsity basketball and I was also, um, you know, part of the detention club in the morning. I was in detention the day I was accepted to Stanford as an undergrad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and all that that implies a lot of time, like kind of out in the back yard in the corner behind school where um, people who had sort of different ideas about things hung out. Um, Yeah. And um, I was, yeah, I was sort of, there was a a big um, young Republicans club sort Uh of cohort. That was not me. I was (laughs) like, (laughs) I was the opposite. I was like, how can we, um, you know, sort of ask fundamental questions and change thinking, um, from go and ideally have fun and get in a little bit of trouble. I have to ask you, why were you in detention that morning? Oh, I think the morning I do, I do. It was, you know, there was an ongoing kerfuffle with the headmaster, um, because I just didn't agree with his line of thinking around, um, the rules about staying on campus. If you weren't a senior, I was a senior, but I was an enabler for a friend who was a junior who was the same age as seniors. So I felt as though his, um, rationality on the topic was not, um, up to par. And he felt like 
he could give me a detention. So that's what happened. <laughs> it's such a, a sort of odd paradox, right? You've been accepted to Stanford and that same morning you're in detention, two things that you would never imagine together. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm curious, like what, what is the relationship with your parents like based on this? Mm, my mom was a lifelong rabble rouser. I mean, she, when, um, both of my older siblings are significantly older than me, and they lived on an army base for a while. My dad was a doctor, and they were at Fort Devens um, during the Vietnam War. And my mom would consistently run into problems for putting up McGovern signs on the base, which you're not allowed to do, or like calling out the trainees who are practicing phone tapping on their phones and be like, you're not very good at this. I hear you. Um, so I think... I come from a long line of um, sort of proud <laughs> truth tellers. Um, it, when it, the good form of it is in um, when it's in the service of social justice, the bad form of it is when it's uh, you know sometimes just uh, a kerfuffle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wish I'd had this kind of audacity in high school. I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Um, so I want to ask you two questions. One um, is about the experience of being captain of a, a varsity sports team in high school. I think, you know, when I see shows like Friday Night Lights and, and I watch movies like Remember the Titans, one of my big regrets from high school is that I didn't play on a sports team because I feel like I missed out on some very invaluable life lessons. Granted, I, you know, am not athletic at all. Uh, well, at <laughs> least in, in, you know, junior high, I wasn't I'm a surfer and snowboarder now. But at that time, I was like, I'm terrible at athletics. So to hell with it. I'm not going to spend time in high school playing sports. And, and I'm curious, um, what are the lessons that you learned from, you know, being a sports team captain that have influenced your life and your work? I think it was one of the best leadership um, opportunities. It was the, the, catalyst for me of turning my sort of preconceptions about leadership means convincing people of something and getting them to sort of behave in the way that you want with your goals. And the experience of doing this work with a team, it was really, um, I viewed it as about, you know, the better community I could help create, the better we were going to play, the more fun we would have. And also just, you know, the more, um, High school is stressful, and we were in a very stressful prep school, and I felt like, um, you know, having the team be in service of, like, let's have this sub-community, and we were super different from one another. You know, there were a lot of being a good basketball player could um, cross-index with all sorts of personalities and um, other features, so I think it was really good in that sense as well that it, it kind of... Um, what I've developed into my primary metaphor for leadership today of, um, you know, having a shared vision, like the metaphor of a puzzle box top, but also appreciating that each of the pieces of the puzzle has an important role to serve and knowing what ours is and also knowing what the people around us um, are contributing is the best way to think of leadership. So I think all of that thinking um, really, um, started developing in that basketball team, quite honestly. Is that something you only recognize in retrospect or did you realize what you were getting at the time? Oh, totally in retrospect. Yeah. A lot of post hoc uh, <laughs> explanation going on right now, for sure. Um, I just knew at the time that I valued that there were all these relationships that I had with people that I wouldn't have otherwise 
been with. And I really valued the role that that community played in my life. Um, those were kind of, those were evident to me at the time. And the rest of this is definitely post hoc layering in. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that really is, is fascinating to me about you is, is especially the sort of audacious tendency to be outspoken. And it, I think it's very fitting. I, I happen to be reading Sally Hogshead's uh, book, How the World Sees You at Your Best. And she says, you know, we don't, uh, have to become fascinating. We have to unlearn boring because what happens is we go through life and we become more and more boring because we're trying to fit in. And, and I'm curious as somebody who has, you know, had this sort of natural ability to be outspoken, how do people cultivate that in their own life? Mm, I love that quote. I'm just you know, processing that. It's, um, so it's interesting. I was on a panel a few weeks ago with Stephen Kotler, who's a New York Times bestselling author. You know him. Who um, yeah. may well have had him, and if you haven't had Absolutely. him as a guest yet, yeah, <laughs> he he's amazing thinker. And one of the very practical, we were talking to. It was a context of a um, an invitational conference, um, and it was heads of L and D, learning development, and HR for a bunch of largely tech companies right here in the Bay Area, and. Um, and he was talking about how one of the precipitants to the flow state is um, is something that, as we, to your point, that we um, select out of as we advance in our careers, um, the precipitant being that we make connections across diverse ideas and this bridging of connecting um, concepts creates not just creativity, but our, our subjective sense of flow and all that that implies in terms of productivity, as well as, you know, things like enjoyment. Um, and it's something I've been just percolating on a lot. And um, because as he was describing that a lot of, you know, the real the people who continue to have curiosity and innovation, as they um, narrow the focus of their jobs, which often happens as we get more and more senior, we get more and more specialized. Um, so to offset that, the practice he recommended, and also the practice I often see is, you know, people who are, they read or they have forms of engaging with arts or news or knowledge that are very different from their primary focus. And that this is, becomes a really important way to not get siloed um, in, in thinking. And I, I think it's a really, um, it's a powerful and super simple idea, which mm -hmm. is also what I love about it. You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about this. Um, we're working on a big article on, on how to be more creative. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, people often repeat this phrase of, you know, I don't have a creative bone in my body, which is absolutely ridiculous because I think the only difference between people who are creative and people who think they're not is that the people who are creative have a habit and a practice of expressing that creativity on a regular basis. Totally agree. And, yeah, I think it's this expression piece that's so um, vital. And also, like, the discipline of, um, you know, what is that famous Stephen King quote about, like, I show up to my writing at whatever time he starts, 8 or 9 a.m. every day as, like, that's, you know, whether or not I'm feeling creative, creativity doesn't happen if I don't show up. And, um, and I think, you know, there's a lot around this intersection here with also like habits and disciplines as well as the sort of, you know, when you create these structures for yourself of how you work and whether you show up, um, then within that container, there's so much opportunity to be productive in a really creative way. Mm. 
So walk me through um, from starting at Stanford to how you have ended up doing the work that you're doing today. Hmm. It's been some zigs and zags. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I... So when I was here as an undergrad, I had already been exposed to mindfulness and and meditation and particularly Tibetan Buddhism, which captured my imagination as a middle schooler um, in the context of a course I took um, taught by a teacher who had been at this prep school that I've been talking about, Dean Slider, who's actually written a bunch of books since then. Um, And... When I got to Stanford, it was something I was curious about and interested in, um, but I was really into poli-sci when I started out here. And then some things happened in my life that um, uh, caused me to revisit um, with much more sort of uh, gusto, but out of necessity, um, the practices and thinking out of um, out of Buddhism. Um, and some of those events, you know, were a back-to-back um, a close childhood friend of mine um, transferred here to Stanford our sophomore year, and he was having a lot of struggles. Um, he was uh, had an onset of acute mental illness, um, and eventually, by the end of that year, had uh, taken his own life, and um, it was just awful. It was totally awful, and. Um, I cared so much about him. I was it, it was reeling as a person and uh, and just feeling like a lot of things that had seemed meaningful weren't anymore. Um, and so I had this um, academic advisor um, professor who I had been already studying with, who um, was in the history department, but did a lot of work with. Um, Tibetan refugees and in Bhutan. And basically he, in my relationship with him, he helped me set up an undergraduate research grant and get my act together to go to um, Dharamsala, the Tibetan refugee community, um, the exile community, um, where the Dalai Lama um, lives, where the exile government is set up. And um, that really, you know, showing up there um, in the state that I was in, <laughs> which was a state, um, you know, right on the heels of this situation with my friend, my father was also diagnosed with cancer, which eventually took his life. But, you know, he was going through sort of early treatment at that point. Um, so, you know, just these kind of life acute things making, um, me much more aware of, the suffering that I was experiencing and looking for tools to deal with it. Also looking for a worldview that made sense. And I, I found a lot of that in the Tibetan refugee communities in, um, in the work that, you know, people who are younger than me today were doing, you know, caring for orphans and, you know, 50 orphans that would live in their home or, um, you know, and trying to mentor them through an education in exile and navigating life without visas or clear trajectories and and seeing how these people did that, you know, how they were, um, they had so much um, resilience and meaning in their life and so much compassion. And, and, um, you know, that really struck me. Um, And then from there, I started practicing a lot more, um, you know, Tibetan Buddhist practice and, and doing 
first shorter retreats a week or so, and then 100 day retreats and interspersing those with grad school. And, you know, the path goes on from there, where I basically by the end of a number of years of doing these um, three to six month retreats, and then going in and out of clinical um, psychotherapy training, and then my doctorate in education and Buddhist studies, I intersected with the Dalai Lama's interpreter, Chupin Jimpa, and um, to basically interview him for my dissertation. And that was when I got um, brought into this project that I've been a part of since then of, of the compassion cultivation training and the research that we do and the programs that we run out of Stanford, which then sort of segued for me personally into the work I do at the business school and in training leaders in mindfulness and compassion. Um, and yeah, wow. that's, that's kind of the, not as short as probably would be ideal thumbnail. No, that's perfect. <laughs> there's, there's a lot there. Um, you know, one of the things that has really struck me about every story that I've had the opportunity to tell in this, the show and every person that I've had the opportunity to talk to is that a crisis of some sort always seems to be the catalyst for major change in their life or the discovery of meaning purpose and what they're destined to do. And I'm curious, uh, why you think that is, I mean, you're exposed to to students on a regular basis and I'd imagine you probably see some of this as well. I do. And, you know, I'm a big believer in this idea of, um, post-traumatic growth and that the role that, um, acute loss or suffering can play in shaking up our perspective and making us ask big questions and realign around strong purpose, um, often making changes that we otherwise wouldn't have the fire under our bottoms to make. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a pattern I see, you know, all over the place. My MBA students here at Stanford business school, also in the veterans I work with, um, with post-traumatic stress, um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's, um, it's, it, and, and then it's also interesting to ask the question, like, why does that happen for some people and other yeah, people end up getting that's defeated? The other question. <laughs> yeah. Do you yeah. have an answer to and that? I, and, hmm. Um, I have some thinking on it, um, which is, I think we have both biological predispositions to how we're going to metabolize trauma, um, which is, you know, the fascinating research about how trauma gets passed on across generations in our genes. Um, you know, so that has to be factored in. I think there's also, um, finding, um, you know, there's a few of the key elements of resilience that I think play in when people can access a strong sense of purpose, that does a lot for resilience when they can access social connection, that can do a lot. Um, And when they feel a sense of agency, um, in the wake of what they're struggling with, I think that these three features are some of the really important ones. Mm, Wow. Well, there's no way we're going to get out of this conversation without me asking you about education. Uh, given that you got a doctorate in education and you went to one of the top schools in the country, I happen to go to that other school across the bay, by the way. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. I guess I can keep talking to you. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's funny. Um, <laughs> and for what it's worth, we didn't win a single big game. The all, all the four years I was in college. So, <laughs> um, 
one of the things that I'm, I'm really curious about, uh, you know, especially from your vantage point, is what you think is right about education, what you think is wrong with it. Do you think it needs to be updated? If so, how? Uh, and the reason that this is so deeply personal to me is, uh, you know, my sister and I had radically similar up incredibly similar upbringings, you know, same parents, both went to Berkeley as undergrads. She got out, became a doctor, kicked ass. I got fired from every job I ever had. And to me, I'm kind of like, my thought is, how is it that two people could have the same experience and produce such drastically different results? And the only place I'm, the question I'm left with is, okay, well, let's question the system. And you have a unique vantage point that I don't. So I'm curious what you have to say about all of this. Hmm. Well, we share that. Um, I also have a sister who's a doctor and has uh, kicked ass in more traditional uh, sort of professional ways. I've had a much more meandering path and is such an interesting thing to think about. Um, from the education perspective, tabling the sibling uh, birth order and all that other good stuff <laughs> we could dig into if you want. Yeah, we should. Um, <laughs> I, so... You know, there's a few ways I think about this. I have three little kids, ages seven, four, and three. So I think about this a lot in terms of like the very early childhood sort of phase we're in. And then, you know, I think about it, I intersect with a lot of undergrads here at Stanford. Um, so I think about their sort of time of life and what we're doing and not doing. And then I also think about this sort of uh, graduate education period. And then, you know, in terms of the work I do in organizations and executive education. Um, so there are kind of four different points of time that um, I think there's some themes throughout them. But um, do one of those uh, periods seem most compelling to dig into to Let's you so. dig into college i know covering all four of them in an hour might be pretty challenging but I think <laughs> yeah. college would be the interesting one and the reason i'm interested in this is i i, I recently uh, published a piece uh, on medium title what we should have learned in school but never did um ended up being shared quite a bit um it's probably the most popular thing i've written to date got picked up by the new york times and so i guess the real question is that is the question in my mind that i'm asking to a lot of people people like yourself included what do you think we should have learned in school particularly in that period that we never did Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to reading that piece. Um, so I think one of the big things that I see with the undergrads here at Stanford, and it's definitely more acute now than it was when I was here as an undergrad. Um, I'll start off by saying that. I think that because of the immense amount of pressure and competition that they've already been through by the time they show up here as freshmen. Um, you know, we just had our 15th reunion like a year or so ago. And the big sort of meme was like, good thing we applied back then because none of us would get in today. Oh, burn, you know, and it was <laughs> a favorite toast of the weekend. Um, but given that what these kids have, um, have been through to be selected to get in here and then they show up here. And so they were the best of the best of the best at everything they did, but they show up in this environment where all of a sudden everybody else was the best of the best of the best of whatever they did. And if their whole sense of self is based on being the best, they can't all do it here at the same time. Uh, and this then becomes this sort of existential question of who am I and am I valuable if I'm not defining myself by being the best anymore? Um, so I think it really like shakes them to the core in terms of identity and, you know, for some of these specialties, you know, both of us have sisters who are docs. So like if you want to be pre-med mm -hmm. here and get into med school, you don't only have to get into those classes, you have to be in the top section of them if you're going to get into a med school. So when they start getting back grades and they're no longer 
not just the best in their class, they're not even in the top half. It's like, what does this mean about my purpose in life? You know, all, all these questions. So the flip side of this, I think what they are not coming in is with a more fully thought through sense of, um, of identity and value as human beings um, that they can draw on um, when they are in this um, competitive environment. And also this is coupled with the fact that there's a really strong culture here at Stanford. I feel like even, you know, more so than the East Coast institutions I did grad work at of, you know, the weather's great, I'm great, everything's great. Um, so what happens is a sort of duck syndrome, um, as we call it here, which is like everything sort of shadow is below the surface of the water and what you see above the water is highly pressured, composed um, versions of self, which then like exacerbate all this. So, so what happens is people don't know that they're in really good company, that everyone is going through the same thing that they are next to them because that doesn't come into the discussion. It's it, the social pressure is to speak about what's positive and going well. Um, so what I see here is, um, you know, a whole lot of suffering. Um, I think we need to buffer these kids much earlier with, um, with self-compassion, with more digging in terms of meaning and purpose for their lives, for their education, with more opportunities to have, um, skills for emotional resilience. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that if we don't do that, we get what we're getting now, which is, you know, intense amounts of anxiety, which feed into all these drinking and drug um, behaviors, you know, and problems and, and also a suicide problem, which is so sad. And I, um, I think is very much um, tied in with what we're talking about you know, this, this dynamic that it's just too much pain, not a way to integrate it. Um, or relate to others and the social isolation compounds everything. You know, it's, it's interesting because it's <clears throat> funny that literally was the I asked the question on Facebook, what do you think we should have learned in school but never did? And three themes arose managing your psychology, interacting with the opposite sex and dealing with money. And what you and I are talking about is managing your psychology. And it, it seems to me like that is the pillar that impacts every other area of our life. And yet we don't learn anything about it. Like I didn't learn a damn thing about managing my emotions until probably 10 years after I graduated from college when I started reading books and, you know, diving into all this stuff and interviewing people like yourself. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm really curious about is what has been the impact of technology on all of this? Yeah. Well, I think if we talk about, you know, things like social connection as being one of the major, um, the major pillars of resilience, you know, obviously technology can be used towards the end of social connection, but it also often gets in the way um, you know, this morning, just as I was walking across campus um, to come to my office, I passed a few former students and each of them are walking with their cell phone out and none of them saw me. And, you know, I it, and then I saw one who didn't have their cell phone out and we had a lovely short interaction. 
and that, you know, just speaking from my perspective, it made a big difference to me to have, it was, it didn't take time, but those moments of connection, I mean, these are huge for our happiness index. And if the technology is getting in the way of those happening and, you know, one of the dynamics I see a lot in students and they write about, I have them pick, um, pick experiments for themselves in their daily life. And one that they'll often pick is looking into their use of technology, particularly phones. And a lot of them explore this relationship between, you know, either minor or acute social anxiety and the role of the phone as something to be a filler, you know, when you're waiting for that friend or waiting for class to start and you don't quite know what to do with yourself, this is a place you can go. But the problem is it doesn't really address that underlying anxiety. So, um, you know, when people do experiments like resetting a password to remind themselves, um, to, you know, do I really want or need to be checking the phone? Could I take a minute to just feel what I'm feeling or, you know, connect with someone else around me or just, you know, enjoy the beautiful Palo Alto weather? Um, they get a lot more value out of that, but it's cross current to the sort of habit and culture of just pulling out the phone as the filler. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one other thing, I mean, we talked about managing your psychology. I guess the other uh, question for me is, you know, as somebody who zigzagged like myself, um, what do you find as, as patterns in people when they're struggling with this idea of figuring out what they want to do with their career and their lives? Um, because I, I think I went into college with this very set sort of idea and it was incredibly narrow. It was like, okay, I'm not going to get into bed school. So I'm going to either, you know, go to business school, law school, or become an investment banker or a management consultant. Those are kind of like my five options that were put in front of me at the table at Berkeley. And, and I'm just curious kind of what you see as far as struggles and patterns with students now in this area. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, feeling as an undergrad, too, that, you know, why aren't there more discussions about other options? And I would even go to the Career Center and just try to, like, have conversations about what there was to do other than these things that didn't resonate. Um, I think, yeah, I think that these having models for a whole array of ways of working um, and having the opportunity when you're at that age to talk to people, not just about like, what is the content of different jobs, but like what, who, who thrives in those jobs and what are the different ways we can approach work? I think that the, you know, I didn't see a real opportunity um, that was either ready-made or sort of um, anyone to coach me through how to do that. Whereas now this is one of the things when people come and talk to me is there's, you know, we're in a moment in time where mindfulness and compassion are really in vogue. So there's a lot of interest in like, how do I get my career focused, you know, on these topics or, you know, these topics with an app or in healthcare or whatever. Um, and what I try to help with is, is, you know, great. So glad you're interested in this. Like, um, get involved in whatever sector you're thinking about and just go try it out. Like, don't try to go to grad school first and be the leader in the field. Like, get yourself involved. If it's healthcare for you, see if you even like it. Because, like, I know I have a lot of friends who got all the way through med school and residency and then realized I'm not that psyched about being in healthcare. Would have been good to know that about 15 years earlier. Yeah. Um, 
So I feel like a lot of this is just like super practical and encouraging a spirit of like experimentation and, you know, not going to inter- informational interviews or internships with the sort of like, how can I build my case and get hired? But really from the perspective of like, is this what I want? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that could be helpful. What do you think? Well, I, I think you had a, a very personal hot button for me. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, one, it's a question that I get often asked by, by younger people. And, and one of the things that I see people worry about is what they want to do with their lives, especially at 18, 19, 20. And I, I remember getting to speak to my high school AP English teacher's class when my first book came out. And this was anything but my plan for life. Um, you know, this is not the career that I had in mind. And one of the things that I think we don't do enough of um, is encouraging exploration and experimentation, because I think that when you're 18, 19, uh, unless you're the rare person who says, you know what, I want to be a doctor, and I know for sure with 100% certainty, you don't have enough data points to make an accurate mm-hmm. assessment on what you'll find fulfilling or rewarding. And, um, you know, I mean, looking back, I would have made drastically different decisions uh, about the jobs that I chose to work at for all my summer internships based on what I know now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I love that idea of just like, the getting there and experimenting. And, and I feel like this sort of analysis paralysis in terms of like, what direction are we going to go um, for young people is just something like if I had one crusade, I would love to just debunk that, that like, you're not going to think your way to the right answer, you're going to get out there and try different things and see how they fit. And that's how you'll do the discernment. And that's going to be a lot of ruling things out as well as ruling things in. Um, But I was such like, I remember trying to make so many decisions based on thinking and just like, it was logical, but it wasn't that relevant, Mm -hmm. you know, or it's just kind of like, and I was so confident in my thinking um, that, you know, I was outraged when, you know, people would ask me questions like, are you sure you want to do the MSW? Have you thought about clinical psychology and doing a PhD? Because you're really like school and then there's going to be loans and, you know, things like that. And I was just like, I will not, you know, I like that social work was created by women and I'm not going to factor in things like finances and, you know. Mm-hmm. 20 years later, I've got three kids and, and monthly um, student load bills. And I wish I had been a little less self-righteous mm-hmm. in, you know, not that I'm, you know, social work is a wonderful field, but I, my point isn't about what the choice was. It's about the how yeah. of getting there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I, I remember uh, very distinctly, I'll never forget this moment in college. It was three weeks into school. I went to a career fair and there's a recruiter from Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. And, you know, I'd asked him what majors they hire people for. And he specifically told me they didn't hire English majors. And after that, I decided that I wasn't going to be an English major, even though I went in with the idea that I might be. Um, and literally, I never, every class I always took was based on how I thought it might help me with my career. Yeah, that's such a good example. And and when you we don't know what that phase, like what the right career for us actually is, it's such an interesting question. Like, what if we had optimized for passion and what we're good at and experimenting at that point in time? It's uh, would be have been a very different undergrad. Yeah. Uh, I I feel like I missed out on so much because of the way I saw things. Like, I feel like if I went back to college now, I would be like Van Wilder. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I often think about I'd be like the female version of Rodney Dangerfield at this point, but <laughs> so, I want yeah. to come back to um, something that you talked about earlier in our conversation, which I think will kind of bring us full circle into your work. You mentioned this idea of you know leadership and shared vision and identifying sort of the pieces of the puzzle and how they all fit together. And, and I'm curious if you could expand on that and you know talk about how we do that in our lives and in our work. So I'll tell you the story for why I encountered and fell in love with this um, as a metaphor for thinking about purpose. So a couple years ago, I had a student who was a mid-career one-year program um, in leadership um, participant here at the business school. And he um, was an officer in the military and came from a family um, a military family. And his dad was had just retired as an Army Corps general. And he, um, we had breakfast after the course was over and I wanted to get his thinking about some work I was doing with veterans with post-traumatic stress. And I was just asking about his life and what he was going back to do, um, you know, in, in his service role and in, in, in with leadership going forward. And he shared with me that he had in growing up, his dad had always had him and his siblings, um, engaged in puzzles, like, you know, and from the time they were little through, you know, the current day, and he and the puzzles would get more and more complicated as they got older. Um, and then when they were leaving home, he would have them go through the process of doing a puzzle without the box top. And just to see how very hard that would be if you don't have this vision. And his dad would use this, um, as a way of describing um, the role of the leader and creating this shared vision for what um, we're all working towards, which, you know, sounds in a way like obvious. um, But then when we see data like, you know, 50 to 70 percent of employees can't answer the question what the organization does or how their role fits in. Um, So we can't actually take for granted that people know what their (laughs) shared purpose is at work and how they fit in. And I love, you know, the North Star is like a great metaphor and it's been used for decades and it's tried and tested. The thing I don't like about it is, though, that the the North Star is up in the sky. And I love the fact, uh, and there's one. Um, and I love the fact that for the puzzle metaphor, you know, the fact that you and me have different shapes and that we're both a part, a vital part of what we're building towards. And we're not going to get to what we're building towards unless we actually understand our differences and how they need to fit together. Like all of that to me is so, um, inspiring as like an authentic reason for why we need to value different strengths and learn to really understand each other and how we can, you know, create an environment where people contribute. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. And I feel like the more I sort of live into this metaphor, the more I love it. Mm, wow. Um, well, I want to finish by talking uh, specifically about mindfulness and compassion, which, you know, you've alluded to throughout our conversation and how it ties to leadership, but more importantly, how it impacts results. I think the, you know, my business partner, Brian, and I have this joke that literally everything we do is somehow has to be tied to generating some sort of results. And we looked at meditation, what finally convinced both of us was like, yeah, Ray Dalio is a billionaire and he meditates. Good. <laughs> we'll pick up the habit. 
Um, <laughs> so I'm really curious uh, what the impact is on, on results and, and on leadership in general. Yeah, I mean, I think this, you know, the sort of the simplest terms is thinking in terms of the mental game that we bring to whatever we're doing is going to have a key role in our success, Um, not to mention our enjoyment and well-being. But if we're actually talking about like return on investment for being mindful um, and for developing our ability to regulate our attention and to focus and to deal with our emotions. I mean, all of these skills are, these are the difference makers between, um, you know, you can get that job for your sort of technical skills, but the bottleneck that people hit and the bottleneck that um, organizations complain about is the emotional quotient side of things and that their leaders are lacking in the ability to, um, to create environments where people can collaborate and innovate effectively. So this is where the sort of compassion side fits in. Um, and last week we had Jeff Weiner, um, CEO of LinkedIn came into my class. Um, and the class I'm teaching this quarter is by design, like a pretty small class of 35 individuals. And we were really having the conversation um, with him about, you know, what, what does it mean in a very practical sense um, to have compassion as a organizational value and, and to do all the things that they do, like hire against it. Like, you know, it's not just um, a sort of theoretical, there's case problems that potential employees have to answer, putting them in the role of having to make a discernment between a financial and a human um, conflicting need. Or, you know, what does it mean to speak with candor balanced with compassion? Um, You know, and I think time and again, there's this a rationality for the fact that like, if we are even from the perspective of, of trying to be quick to market, compete, come up with the best ideas, you're never going to get there if your team can't work together well. And we are having an epidemic of um, just interpersonal issues in the workplace that cost billions of dollars a year because people do all sorts of crazy stuff when they don't like or want to support their coworkers. There's all these amazing studies that are just, you know, documenting the sort of sabotage um, or inefficiencies that happen. If my priority in the situation is to make sure you don't get ahead, um, that has real implications if we need to be working as a team. So that's sort of the, the, from the perspective of like why, is there a return on investment in valuing and training and these qualities? Those are some of the reasons why. So I guess the, the sort of final question is how do you go about implementing it in your life? Yeah. So I think, you know, individually, interpersonally, and at a systems level. Um, and ideally these are, you know, being implemented, things like mindfulness and compassion being implemented on all three of those levels. Um, So there's certainly a lot we can do as an individual in terms of practice or mindset um, and, you know, sort of leveraging, leveraging and using um, the positive psychology research that we have. And that's one way of working at, and really taking it into like a skills training 
attitude training um, sort of approach. Um, I think on the interpersonal level, there's a lot that we need to be trained in, in terms of communication and, you know, the real meaning of inclusion of diverse perspectives, not just getting people into the room, but really learning how to hear each other across difference and have empathy and be able to disagree in a productive, humane way. Um, and then there's a lot of organizationally. So if you, even if you do the first and second, but you're in a toxic environment, you're going to be in an uphill battle. And so this is one of the places that, you know, Jeff Wiener said it last week, and I hear this over and over again, um, when the MBA students in, are asking, like, what would you keep in mind as I'm picking my next job out of school? It's like, do not underestimate the importance of culture. You need to be really attentive to the organizational values and take it seriously because you're going to be a fish in water in that culture and it will impact you. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, I think that makes a really uh, fitting and beautiful end to our conversation. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Um, I think intellectual humility is a really important piece of that, that, um, the the version of it that drives real curiosity um, and ongoing learning and um, growth and caring about new and different perspectives. So, so yeah, I'm going to go with an intellectual humility. Awesome. Well, uh, this has been truly amazing. I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share your stories and your insights with our listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work? So the best place is um, on my website and um, you can dig in. There's a lot of resources there. And then my book is launching in a few weeks. Um, so you could pre-order that or check that out, um, which will give you a snapshot of the training that I teach here uh, at Stanford and in organizations. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that. 
and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.